Welcome back to Victor E. History Podcast from the History Department at Fort Hay State University, home of Victor E. Tiger. Here at Victor E. History, Dr. Manami Guha and Holly Marquis highlight student, faculty, and alumni research. I'm Holly Marquis, and today I'm joined by senior history major Shelby Oshel. Shelby was featured on season one of Victory History in episode three, where she discusses seances, sex, and spiritualism. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check that out. Today, she's here to discuss communism and cartoons, understanding themes of gender and nationalism in Soviet animations. Welcome back, Shelby. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. When you were last on the podcast, I had you tell listeners about yourself, so we won't repeat that here. But I will encourage everyone to listen to your season one episode because it's a fascinating and just plain fun research. You are a senior now. You're about to graduate in May. Can you tell us a little about your experience here as a student? It's honestly been such a wonderful experience. Last semester, I was able to present at my first conference. Uh, I was at KAH. And uh, that gave me a lot of insight into the more professional realm of what it's like to be a history major. I've also been working with you and with Sarah Keese on prostitution research in early Hayes, and that has been super rewarding and very uh, interesting to see how that process actually works. Yeah, and you will certainly be presenting that research at KAH again. That's the Kansas Association of Historians. I love that conference for students because everyone is so kind and helpful, and it is a great way to get your feet wet into undergraduate research. I'm going to circle back at the end and ask you a little about that research, but before we get to your current research, can you tell me, do you have a favorite class that you've taken here? I would have to say that out of the classes that I've taken so far, um, I would say that LGBTQ world history has definitely been one of my favorites. And then um, between... I've put you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. I'm trying to think. Let's see. Definitely uh, Gunpowder Empires this semester has been very insightful. I haven't learned a lot or I'm not really familiar with uh, the politics of the Middle East uh, from a non-Western perspective. That's been very cool. And then also learning about uh, more of Central and Eastern Europe, as I did for my seminar paper and also in the history of the USSR has been great. So lots of favorite classes here. You have a really neat knack for finding interesting research topics, which is always appreciated by those of us who are grading those research papers. But it's important since you're going to be uh, going to grad school for public history that you're thinking about history in a way that's consumable by the public. So you're already ahead of the game in that way. Tell me about the class that you wrote this paper for. So I wrote this paper for a seminar class, um, and it focused on the ideas of nationalism and socialism in Central and Eastern Europe. This class really took me out of my element in a lot of different ways. I, I'm really not big into geography, and geography is so important in this region. So I, I really had to uh, take a different approach to understanding maps and boundaries and how all of these things mix together, and especially in such a complex, uh, ethnically diverse area. Geography has never been my strong suit either. So thankfully I'm an Americanist. So after a certain point, the geography <laughs> sort of stays the same, which is not true for the region that you're studying. So how did you ultimately end up settling on the topic of Soviet cartoons? I know that in my last episode, I had talked about how Scooby-Doo was like a huge inspiration <laughs> right. for my methods paper. And I kind of carried on with that. I think that cartoons 
and media in general are a really great way to understand uh, what values are at a core of society, uh, with cartoons especially because they're typically targeted at children. So it's important that they get that message across as concisely as possible in like the easiest ways. Um, and also they're super fun and interesting to watch. They're typically not too difficult to understand regardless of any like language barriers. Yeah, if they're marketed to children, they're pretty easy. I keep trying to pitch World War II cartoons in methods class and no one takes me up on it. And I keep saying, but you get to watch cartoons for your primary sources. So um, watching cartoons is a fun way to research. What lens are you looking at within these Soviet animations? I'm definitely following more gendered lines uh, with this research. I want to see how both masculinity and femininity are showcased within these cartoons. And you're tracing these patterns in animation, but also the evolution of animation at the same time. So you're discussing how uh, Soviet animation is evolving. And I think that's a neat way to approach this paper because both the Soviet Union and animation are in their infancies. How did the Soviets at this time use animation to identify what is an ideal attribute of a Soviet woman or a Soviet man? The Soviets were very strategic in how they chose to portray men and women, especially early on, most cartoons focused on men in particular. During this time, they chose to portray men as being not only masculine, but healthy, strong, and obedient to the Bolshevik and then eventually the Communist Party. Well, there was a shift away from intellectualism really briefly because it was associated with bourgeoisie rhetoric, uh, especially after following the uh, October Revolution. Uh, Soviet men were expected to keep up with the ideology that was being presented, especially as the party was putting it out. Um, within these cartoons, we see men that are not only physically adept, but also very mentally capable in the sense that they are constantly obeying the wishes of the party. And they think of new and better ways to help serve their party and the community around them. Uh, a lot of cartoons chose to emphasize attributes that they found to be negative to kind of reinforce what idea ideal Soviet manhood looked like. Um, they like to pick on West, pick on Westerners a lot. And they also, uh, they had a knack for picking on Americans, which was interesting uh, to look at. And they often portrayed Western or Americanized individuals, uh, first and foremost as capitalists. Um, and then they would also be portrayed as obese, short in height, unintelligent, and they gave them animalistic features often. Um, and women, when they were portrayed, which wasn't very often early on, um, they were portrayed as being innocent, sexless individuals. You're seeing a lot of dutiful wives and mothers in that typical sense. Um, and women were seen as individuals that supported the Communist Party through supporting their husbands, their family, and then as they entered the uh, world of industry and working as workers that would provide in that sense. Let's unpack the societal expectations for Soviet women first. How does that reveal itself in animation? Well, first, I'd like to start by sharing a quote from a poet named Alexandra Kolontai in a speech she gave in 1946. She describes Soviet women as a full and equal citizen of her country and opening up to women access to every sphere of creative activity. Our state has simultaneously ensured all the conditions necessary for her to fulfill her natural obligation, that of being a mother, bringing up her children and mistress of her home. 
She is a mother contributing to society through creative labor and her continued care for her husband, home, and children. Ick. That just, <laughs> that is a 21st century independent woman. That just gives me the ick. It's, uh, it was very interesting to read that for the first time, especially since Soviet policy and especially Soviet law was seen as being very progressive at the time. It's one of the first uh, unified collections of nations that actually allows women the right to vote at a very early stage. So seeing this kind of rhetoric uh, being repeated and publicized, um, especially going into, you know, World War II, it was honestly just kind of shocking. Um, How do they then shift to marketing products specifically to women? So as regulations of foreign goods changed due to like new economic plans, you really started to see a shift in consumerist culture that was focusing on women. Um, Ideally, the Soviet Union wanted to move away from a society that had money at all. Um, As we know, this couldn't happen quickly. So money existed in in this society for a very long time for its entirety. And uh, they really grappled with how to use this consumerist culture while also reifying, you know, communist and socialist beliefs. But uh, especially after the end of World War II, we see an uptick in emphasis on products for women because they were seen as the individuals that were taking care of the home. So they chose to use that as um, this marketing ideal. Uh, Women were going to be in charge of mending clothes and preparing food and just taking care of the home in general. So all of their marketing was targeting these very specific aspects that would be uh, specialized and individualized to the perceived female experience. That's pretty similar to what's happening in the U.S. at the same time. So that's really interesting. What about masculinity in Soviet animation? Ideal Soviet men are portrayed as being masculine, not necessarily hyper-masculine, but uh, just very healthy individuals and Uh, Their worth is based a lot on their ability to perform tasks that benefit the greater good of society and uh, typically through loyalty to the Communist Party. They were also portrayed as dutiful husbands and fathers, but that was less emphasized on the male aspect as it was for uh, women. And then uh, they also really they really enjoy putting down Western men um, and they do this by portraying them as short, weak, physically incapable, and in some ways mentally incapable. And uh, on comparison, one-to-one comparisons, they're typically not able to perform the same tasks as Soviet men. I find this idea of portraying men as short and weak very interesting because, as we know, height has absolutely nothing to do with masculinity, but also Stalin was pretty short. He was my size. So I find that very interesting. Tell me about the film Soviet Toys. Soviet Toys is by far one of the most intentional portrayals of ideology in Soviet animation. The cartoon shows the worst members of Soviet society. It's a black and white cartoon that starts out by showing a capitalist man that abuses his greed and privilege to exploit good Soviet people. And along the way, he encounters a prostitute, a rabbi, and an Orthodox minister. Across the course of the cartoon, these individuals make an absolute mess of the area that they're in. They're drinking, gambling, well, not so much the rabbi and the minister, uh, but definitely the capitalist and the prostitute. 
Um, and basically they're just looked down on by the rabbi and the Orthodox minister without much intervention. So this process continues until there is a Soviet worker and a Soviet soldier that decide that they're going to put a halt to all of these shenanigans. Um, so they go in and uh, arrest all of these individuals. Uh, they hang the capitalist and uh, they eventually hang the prostitute, the rabbi and the minister as well. That's taking a dark turn. Uh, it is, uh, especially uh, when uh, the reason that the cartoon is called Soviet Toys is because all of these characters are toys that have been placed under a Christmas tree for the child. Um, at the end of this cartoon, we see a, an even darker narrative as the individuals that have been hanged are strung up on the Christmas tree, like a garland. And that is the end of the cartoon. So a prostitute toy for Christmas is a choice. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely an interesting turn. There were some very disturbing moments in that cartoon, aside from the whole aspect of hanging the capitalist man at one point like consumes the prostitute. Like she jumps into his stomach that. Wow. Yeah. And so that leads me to my next question. Are these films marketed to children? Initially, a lot of them were marketed to a larger audience because film was in its infancy. Everyone was really wanting to consume this type of media, but definitely as both animation and the Soviet union grew, they were more typically, uh, associated and targeted at children. It's really interesting to see how that shift takes place. I know that, you know, you would assume that because these cartoons are being marketed to children, that they would kind of soften up on the rhetoric, but that's not always the case. It doesn't sound like it. The individuals that are producing this type of media have to be able to concisely convey this type of message. And sometimes they elect to go with a very blunt perspective. And that's why we get some of these more sometimes gruesome and more disturbing aspects in the cartoons. As we move into the World War II era, a lot of countries are cranking out propaganda films, and the Soviet Union is not an exception. Can you give me some examples of how war propaganda shows up in this type of animation? The Soviet Union released multiple uh, war propaganda cartoons during World War II, and despite their many qualms with the West, and especially with the United States in particular, there are some very striking similarities between the types of propaganda that are being uh, put out. Soviet animators portrayed Nazis as animals, typically as pigs or vultures. Uh, they also portrayed them as dogs, uh, which was a very interesting kind of turn of phrase to see on the screen. And most of these films really focus on a specific color theme. They really played into the red, black, and white and villainizing those colors, which was really interesting to watch, especially since, you know, communism, the USSR is typically associated with the color red. Um, so to kind of watch how these animators use different shades to kind of reinforce uh, the idea of Nazis being villainous and wrong, while also keeping the idea of uh, communist beliefs and socialist beliefs as being a stronghold was a very interesting dichotomy to watch play out. Post-war, there was a short series in 1969 that featured some adorable-sounding characters. Tell me about this one. The name of this series is Chibaroshka. It features a little young creature. He kind of looks like a bear. His name is Chibaroshka, as the name of the series. And he's described as being a being unknown to modern science. 
He's accidentally captured from a tropical island and he's brought into the USSR in an orange crate. When he arrives, he's adopted by a very friendly crocodile named Guinea, and they go on adventures together. The cartoon is really interesting because it's very culturally iconic. Uh, Chibaroshka was very similar to how we would have perceived Mickey Mouse. Okay. Uh, it's very well loved, um, absolutely adorable, and still a, a kind of a watershed moment in post-Soviet society. Sounds much more appropriate to children than some of the others you've described. Absolutely. Uh, especially with this cartoon. And as you get more into like the late fifties, sixties and seventies, you see kind of a softer turn taking place within these cartoons. Uh, they're starting to resemble what we would perceive as being like more Westernized. They are softer folklore stories being told to children, uh, kind of as a like a comforting moment, but they also have their, those educational moments. What, ha- what happens to Soviet animation when the Soviet Union collapses? In many ways, Soviet animation resembles the collapse in the Soviet Union. Uh, Soyuzmet Film, which was the government-authorized film production agency, was dissolved after the fall of the Soviet Union, and a lot of really prominent Soviet animators kind of abandoned the field in some senses. They took on career paths that were vastly different, um, and... We're also seeing a collapse in this already fractured communist ideology. And uh, animation takes a a really different, interesting turn as individuals try and parse out what their identity is past uh, the extent of communism and socialism. And they really are trying to identify who they are as people for the first time in almost a century after being under the thumb of a largely totalitarian regime. You must have watched a lot of cartoons and films for this research. Did you have a favorite? Chibaroshka was by far my favorite. The content within that cartoon was very wholesome. The music was very calming. And after some of the extremely disturbing cartoons, uh, especially the older ones, it was like a breath of fresh air. Uh, Another film that I particularly enjoyed was titled Black and White, and it was a Soviet commentary on the system of Jim Crow and segregation in the United States. Uh, It was very interesting to see how the Soviets thought of American race policy and how they were portraying that as negative to their citizens. What was the strangest one to your 21st century Western eyes? By far, hands down, the strangest cartoon was titled Interplanetary Revolution, an event very likely to happen in 1929. This cartoon took place on Mars, where capitalists had invaded, taken over, and set up um, industrialized factories. And then uh, they basically enslaved people within capitalism, and they were forcing them to uh, produce for them. Which, the topic doesn't seem super outlandish initially, it just seems kind of like more of a sci-fi propaganda type film, which was not uncommon at the time. But uh, there were definitely some very odd moments that took place. Uh, For instance, there is a scene where two Soviet soldiers are attempting to invade Mars to seize the means of production and free the people. Uh, When they are traveling in their spaceship past Mars, uh, they look in on a house in which a capitalist man and a capitalist woman are engaging in sexual intercourse, which is an odd choice to begin with, but it continues to get weirder as the capitalist woman's 
breasts swell and explode, seemingly just for cinematic effect. That does sound like a strange sexual encounter. It, it definitely was. Um, and that film in particular was made in 1925. So it already has that kind of like older, like just like stockier, creepier vibe to it already. And then just with a, a, a random sex scene right in the middle. With exploding breasts. Yeah. That, I, I don't know if that one will ever leave my head. We'll have to hashtag exploding breasts on the website. <laughs> Did you find anything that was interesting in your research that you just couldn't include in the paper? Mostly, I wish I would have had more time and more information to discuss differences in racial policy and how that was portrayed in animation. As a Western individual, especially as an American, I have a very specific perception of how race and systematic oppression were codified into law and the outcome and the outcomes of these situations, especially as it relates to the transatlantic slave trade. Of course, this is not the case in Central and Eastern Europe, and uh, they have a completely different ideology of race. And uh, while they obviously aren't infallible from falling into racist tropes, uh, they have a very strategic way of how they handle race policy. And it's fascinating to see how such a culturally and ethnically diverse area attempted to grapple with the issues that come with racial differences and intolerance. You're staying around for grad school, so maybe you can explore that in another class. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier that you are working with me on finding uh, unmarked graves of sex workers from early Hayes City. Can you give our listeners just a little snippet of what that is entailing? So that research, um, I've been fortunate enough to have a really great research partner, first of all. Sarah Keys has done an excellent job, um, and she's made a lot of really great headway. A lot of our um, biggest breakthroughs have been as a result of her work. She loves maps, so she has a skill that neither of us possess. Yeah, and, and she's been absolutely instrumental um, with her help. It, so it, a lot of it's been a lot of looking at maps. We've been looking at old records, newspaper articles, and also we've taken multiple trips out to Mount Allen Cemetery. Take a look at um, possible plots where these women may have been buried. And uh, that's been really interesting to see uh, not only the documentation that was present, but the complete lack of documentation in other aspects. Right. And so to explain a little bit, these women were buried at Boot Hill dug up, reburied, but unmarked. And you think you found them, we'll, we'll leave it with that sort of spoiler and more to come on this later. Uh, I look forward to seeing what you do in my Women in American History class. You always write such interesting research papers. So we're all excited to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Thank you for educating us on very different animation that we're used to today. <laughs> Well, thank you. It's been wonderful to be back, and it was a really fun project to work on. We'll post a selected bibliography for this research that includes videos, so you can check out some of that. So via animation, if you visit our website, victoryhistory.com, that's B-I-C-T-O-R-E, history.com. You can subscribe by emails to get notifications anytime we post an episode, and you can find our Victory History podcast really anywhere you get your podcasts or at victoryhistory.com. And if you're interested in pursuing a history degree or a history education degree at FHSU online or on campus, visit www.fhsu.edu history to learn more.